is taken from, again, 57th number of Psalms, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. That's Psalms 57, verses 1 through 3. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in your, in my, for you, my, in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now you'll notice in the title line of this psalm, it says that it's not only a psalm of David, but it was crafted either when or in uh, response to his being uh, or his having to take refuge or flee and hide in the cave of Adullam. Uh, The reference here, the historical reference to this event is recorded in First Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 4 or 5. And in that, we've made reference before, this isn't the only psalm that references that experience. Uh, another one is Psalms 34. And as we've mentioned in the past, the backstory to First Samuel 22 is actually First Samuel 21 where it's not just a matter of David fleeing from Saul, which he is actually fleeing from Saul, but in Psalms in 1 Samuel 21, there are two incidents that lead up to his fleeing and taking refuge in the cave. The first one is David is traveling with his men. It all occurs actually in the same instance uh, or from one to the other. But David is traveling with his men, and he is hungry, and he doesn't have a weapon from him or with him. And as he's fleeing the presence of Saul, he goes into the temple. When he goes into the temple, he encounters Ahimelech, who was the high priest at the time, and he asks if there's any food available. And Ahimelech informs him of the showbread, the showbread which was symbolic of God's uh, providence and care and provisions for his people, as well as his presence with his people. It was called the, the bread of the presence, reminding the people of Israel that God supplies not only all of their spiritual needs, but all of their physical needs as well. Uh, and when there is an interview, or more or less, to make sure it is appropriate for David to receive of the showbread, and he receives it. Now, once he eats the showbread, David asks Ahimelech, by the way, do you have any weapons with you? I'm on a king's assignment, and I didn't get a chance to bring a weapon, and I don't have one with me. Do you have a weapon? And, and he says, well, the only one that I have is, is Goliath's sword or, or spear or sword. He says, the one that is kept and it's wrapped in an ephod. And of course, he's referencing that David, when he slew Goliath, we know that David slew him with a stone without the use of a spear or a sword. But when he hit Goliath with the stone and the giant fell on the ground, David went over to the giant and took his sword and cut off his head. And so, therefore, it was kept in Jerusalem, or it was kept in the holy place as sort of a sacred trophy. 
reminder that God, through his anointed servant, defeats the enemies of his people. And so the people kept it just as a reminder of God's goodness. So, so here David is. He goes into the temple with his men. He receives bread that no one else is actually uh, able to, to eat. And uh, it's, it's, it's really kept away from common usage. And then on top of it, he has the sword that reminds him of perhaps his greatest military victory. But David needs assistance, so to speak, from the king of Gath. And so he plans a little, a little furlough to go to Gath. And he wants to talk to him, perhaps to maybe get coverage, uh, to, to, to partner with him as he seeks uh, to, to hide from, from the presence of Saul and David, when he gets in the presence, and, and Gath, when he hears that the king, that, that this great warrior from Israel, David, is about to visit him, he steps up. I, I'm, I'm a great Sherlock Holmes fan, and one of the things I love about reading the stories of Sherlock Holmes is when Holmes encounters a brilliant criminal, he admires his enemies. Doesn't like him, but he says, wow, that's smart. And, of course, if you are familiar with, with the story of Sherlock Holmes, and they do capture this in the latest film. And, by the way, anyone who's interested in Sherlock Holmes, the best Sherlock Holmes on film is Basil Rathbone. <laughs> and that goes back to the 40s. That's in, that's in black and white. The Basil Rathbone versions of of, of Sherlock Holmes are the best, and I love Robert Downey Jr., but the best Sherlock Holmes is Basil Rathbone. But, but in, in the, the latest film version, his, his, his main nemesis was Dr. Moriarty. And every now and then he would see brilliant work done by the doctor and he just anticipated meeting up with the great mind that puzzled him all this time. And that's kind of the way uh, Akish is. He hears that David wants to meet with him. He says, David, the great warrior from, from, from Israel, sure I'll meet with him. He has nothing up his sleeves. He wants to stand face to face with his nemesis. And David, belly full with the showbread, the, the, the sword that reminds him of God's sovereign victory through him over Goliath goes in the presence of Gash and he plays the fool. Instead of standing in the strength and the confidence of the Lord, David has spittle coming all out of his mouth and his hair is all matted and he's looking crazy and, and, and acting like he's just a stranger in need of shelter. And when, when Achish looks at him, he says, this, is, this, is this the man I've been hearing about? This is a mere fool. What is he doing in my presence? And it's from that incident that David goes to the cave of Adullam. Now, brothers and sisters, I would contend that the cave of Adullam for David wasn't just a hiding place. And we, we, it wasn't just a hiding place from Saul, but it really was a season of shame. And it was a season of regret. You see, David wasn't just seeking shelter. He, he could have gone perhaps to Gath and, and made an alliance or allegiance and, and, and done some kind of work, which he eventually does. He does work for foreign governments and, and for farmers and so forth until he's able to resume or to take over the throne. 
that he has been promised and he's been anointed for. But instead, he goes to the cave in a season of shame and regret. And I, would, I again would contend that it's the aftermath, oftentimes, of personal failures. And it's the aftermath of seasons of disgrace that we have a better grasp and a better understanding of God's grace towards us. Sometimes we fly too high. Sometimes we, it's, it's in our strength that God cripples us. One preacher put it this way about, about Jacob when the Lord, you know, when Jacob wrestled with the Lord at, at Joppa and the Lord dis, put his, threw his hip out of socket and, 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 and he walked with a, a limp for the rest of his life. And one preacher wisely observed that, that Jacob was a better man limping than he was before when he was, had full faculty and he walked better. And so the cave of Adullam for David is like that wrestling match. It, it just kind of reminds him. And that's where we get that great psalm, Psalms 34. Two statements out of that psalm, I think, are immediate references to his failure in the presence of the enemy. When he says, I will, the, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praises shall forever be upon my lips. I think he can't help but think of that one time when the praise of the Lord wasn't upon his lips, when he was in the presence of Gath. And it's almost as if he writes those words to say, I'll never let that happen again. The other statement that, that reflects or that resonates from Psalm 34 that, that, that kind of harkens back to that experience is he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, I think he's referring back to that moment when he had the taste of the showbread fresh in his mouth and instead of giving praise to the God who is represented in the showbread, he depends on his own scheming. And his own wisdom. But he says, oh, taste and see. In other words, a reminder, a physical reminder of God's spiritual presence and promises to his people should have caused him to walk in a different way. Well, I think, again, this, these seasons of, 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 or this aftermath of disgrace and this aftermath of, of personal failure can be seasons of profitable reflection on the sweetness and the sufficiency of God's grace. And as such, I would argue that in our text, in the first three verses, David's reflection from Adullam gives us three great gospel truths that we should always be mindful of. Three great gospel truths. And, and it's almost, it's not like David didn't know this before, but the shadows of the cave remind him to never let it go, ne never, never let it slip his mind again. Here's the first thing. The first one is this statement, that God is the refuge of his people. Verse 1, God is the refuge of his people. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Now, in our journey through the Psalms, we've made this point um, before and rightly so concerning the idea of refuge because the word refuge appears over 40 times throughout the Psalms. 
So we've talked about what it means to, to have a place of refuge. And, and this is a prominent theme in the Psalter. God is the refuge of his people. Now the word basically means a place of safety. And a, safe of, a place of protection. We talk about refugees as those who have sought protection and safety outside of their own country or their own place of origin because for whatever reason. Now, I would argue that we need, in this fallen world, we need a place of refuge, a place of protection. And our need for a place of protection is endemic to our fallen nature because we live in a fallen world. We need Protection. I don't want to just talk about our general protection, but let me just summarize three categories by which, uh, in which we need protection as fallen creatures living in a fallen world. Ultimately this, we need protection from the God of wrath or from the wrath of God, both the wrath of God and the God of wrath. We need protection from God. You see, all of the disasters in the natural order all of the diseases that we experience, and ultimately even our journey into death are reminders that we live in a cursed creation. All things, all things are around us are working towards the greater day of wrath. We live in a cursed creation and people talk about, you know, climate change and, and is it natural or is man contributing to it? It's both. Man is contributing. We are contributing to a lot of what's going on and the disorder in our environment. But even if we didn't, the creation is working against us. We live in a cursed creation. You say, well, maybe we're not. Ask your body. Right? <laughs> Ask your body. I remember Muhammad Ali when he came out of exile or out of jail and he, before he, was, he got back in the ring and, and he was getting ready for his first fight and Howard Cosell, you know, remember Howard. Uh, and he was asking him, oh, well, Muhammad, you're about to go in the ring, but look at you. You're not the man that you were 10 years ago. And Ali looked at him and says, but Howard, neither are you. You see, brothers and sisters, our bodies tell us that we're living under a curse. And there's, no, there's not enough lipstick that you can put on that pig to reverse it. Even if we live long, we break down. The order around us, nothing is like it used to be. And the reason... It's not because stuff just falls apart. It falls apart because there is a creator whose wrath is on display in the created order. Disease, destruction, all of these things are evidences of the judgment that this world is under and it's only preparation for the final judgment that is yet to come. There will be a final day of judgment where the fullness of God's wrath will be displayed. But until then, those that God chooses brings to a, a saving knowledge of his son, what he does through the gospel is he protects us from his wrath. 
We experience it. We experience all of the disorders that takes place within the created order. But we are reminded that our experience is, is different from those who are outside of the gospel. This is a point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that when we are judged, we are chastened as uh, we are chastened of the Lord so that we won't be condemned with the world. So here's one of the things that we need refuge from. People don't like to admit this, but the gospel means that God saves us from himself. That's our ultimate problem. Our ultimate problem is with God. And so what God gives us is the ultimate solution in the gospel. And in the gospel, God saves us from himself. The gospel is refuge and protection from the wrath of God. But secondly, we also need protection against our adversaries. We have adversaries, whether it's personal enemies who are against us because they don't like us or because they just have their issues within and think they don't like us or whether we have enemies who don't like us because we belong to the Lord. And we know that, that Satan doesn't like us. And doesn't, it's not so much us. He hates God. And therefore, he hates anything that belongs to God. And so, therefore, it is true that the, we do have enemies. And here's what we have in the gospel. The gospel gives us protection from our enemies. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean our enemies won't lie on us. It doesn't mean that they won't gossip about us. It doesn't mean that they might not catch us down the street in a dark alley and, and do some things to us. It doesn't mean that they won't break into our house. It doesn't mean that they won't shun us every opportunity they get. But what it does mean is that they can't take anything from us that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And what it also means is that they can't bring any charge against us to the Father that God himself hasn't already dealt with. They can't tell on us. And so, therefore, we are protected in the gospel, not only from the wrath of God, but we are also protected in the gospel because ultimately the enemy loses and the people of God win. This is beautifully demonstrated for us even by, uh, by Daniel and by his three friends in the book of Daniel. Daniel was so convinced that he is the child of God that even the threat of death by lions didn't break that alliance. And he understood that if the lions eat me, that doesn't hurt me. And the same with the Hebrew boys, his three friends, that when they were faced with the prospect of not only fire, but this is the most ridiculous thing and just shows you the depth of human depravity, heat fire seven times hotter. I, I, I'm not scientific enough to know what's hotter than hot. But seven times hotter than it ought to be to show you the, 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 the depths of which that, that the enemy will go to to try to silence those that are the people of God. The Hebrew boy says, that's okay. because And, and I love this. They didn't look the other way. They didn't say, oh, my God ain't going to let me. He said, no, kill us. It doesn't matter. We still won't bow. And when we wake up, we'll be in the presence of the one that we will bow before. We don't lose. 
They went in the fire and came out. Say, oh, well, you know, here we are. We told you. We told you before you put us in. Right? Peter was crucified and James was beheaded. But they all won. Because those who, are, who, who have faith in Christ have been given refuge. And God is the refuge of his people that protects them from his own wrath and protects them ultimately from anything that the enemy can do to them in an ultimate sense. Brothers and sisters, there is a third category that we have refuge from in the gospel of of Christ. We have refuge because we need protection from our inner struggles and our own shame and our own guilt. The gospel. The gospel is, is what allows us. It gives us refuge. So that we can look in the mirror. Knowing who we are. And what we have done. We can look in the mirror. And claim to be called the children of God. In the current issue of Table Talk magazine. I'm not saying this as a plug. But I do have an article in there on the, the role of the Holy Spirit in our prayers. And the point that we make in the article is that the primary role of the Spirit in our prayers is that he allows us sinners to boldly go to the throne of grace and in the midst of our guilt cry out, Abba, Father. Everything within us, our church culture, our baggage, ourselves, tell us, well, you know, he can't, he won't speak to you until you know. The Spirit says, go, you are a child. We have protection so that we don't fall down the many rabbit holes of our own inner demons and our own struggles. Sometimes we don't act like Christians or feel like Christians and we have refuge in God to say, but you are mine and I have loved you everlastingly. God is the refuge of his people and something about that cave experience from in Adullam that David is reminded that his strength is not his wit. His protection is not his sword. And his, his, his protection and his refuge is not the allegiances that he makes or the alliances that he makes with earthly kings. His protection, his ultimate protection against the wrath of God, against the enemies of the flesh, and against the, the things that rise up in his own spirit is nothing other than God himself. Again, he says, in the shadow of your wings... I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Because in God, God is the protection for his people until he calls us home. But here's the second thing, a second great truth that David reflects on as he's in the cave in verse 2. He makes this observation, God will, uh, will fulfill his purposes for his people. He will fulfill his purposes. In verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I can't help but think of Jeremiah 29, 11, where the Lord says, 
For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Three important implications of recognizing that God's purposes, God will fulfill his purposes for us. It's not us reaching our destiny and and I just kind of hate the way those terms are being used today. It's not our destiny, it's God's purpose. Three important implications. One, of that statement that God will fulfill his purposes for us, that reminds us, one, that nothing in your past will stop God's purpose for you. Nothing in your past will stop God's purposes. In other words, they, oh, you know, oh, we, we found, no, God, God loved us before. Even while we were yet enemies and God's purposes for us takes into conclusion the past that we have come from. And so there is nothing in your past that will hinder or frustrate God's purposes for you. Here's the second implication. There is nothing in your present that can stop God's purposes. Not an angry king who refuses to give up the throne that God has already have a replacement for. Not a, a foreign king who has laughed at you. Not a motley crew that are surrounded uh, with you or that surrounds you in the middle of this cave. There is nothing right now that's going to stop God's purposes for you. Nothing in the past and nothing present. You say, well, and I... And I we hear this a lot and people think it and I know where they get it from but they think well I got to do this or else the Lord won't bless me and I'm not going all of that is nonsense there is nothing there is no sin against you and there is nothing that you will go through right now that can stop God's purposes for you let's remember who it is that's purposing here he says, Lord, you will fulfill my purpose. And can you imagine David saying these words? Here, before he went to battle with Goliath, Dave, or, or Samuel, the anointed prophet of God, had anointed him as the new king of Israel. He goes into battle without armor, without a sword, kills the, the, the great giant from the other side, cuts his head off with his own sword. The people sing his praises, and the king that he gave relief to tries to kill him. Can you imagine, David? I, we don't know how much time transpires before his, between his anointing and his receiving the throne, but a lot of tears were shed. A lot of struggles were experienced. A lot of failure, a lot of frustration. And here in the middle of the cave, David says, well, through it all, here's what I know. What God has purposed for me, he is the one who will fulfill it. Nothing from our past can keep back what God has intended. Nothing in our present can stop God's purposes for us. But thirdly, nothing in our pathway can stop what God has purposed. What about that mountain over there? He'll either take you around it, through it, or remove it, or make it a prop for accomplishing his purposes. There is nothing in your pathway 
that can hinder God's purposes for you. And sometimes it takes a cave to remember that. You see, David perhaps was looking at Achish as someone that he needed to maneuver around and find out, you know, and and get some help. And all he needed to do was stand. He didn't have to act a fool. But that brings us, therefore, to the third thing that David indicates here that he reflects upon as he's in this cave. He is reminded that God is the refuge or the protection for his people. He is reminded that there is nothing that can hinder or frustrate God's purposes for his people. But we see in verse 3 that David is reminded that God's steadfast love or his covenant faithfulness is the hope of his people. Now, obviously, when we've again referred to this, because just like refuge, the idea of God's covenant love, his steadfast love or covenant faithfulness is a theme that is repeated over and over throughout the the Psalter. And what is meant is God is faithful. And and, and the thing that I love uh, about his description of God's covenant faithfulness to him is it's it's seen as it's seen here in verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Three things that we can say about God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love or covenant faithfulness is a matter of divine condescension. God's covenant love is a matter of divine condescension. God consciously condescends to where we are. Look at what he says. He will sin from heaven. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy where, uh, where Moses says, don't let anybody say we will go up to heaven and bring Christ down or don't let anybody say that we will climb or that, that they have to either go up or come down. He says, no, no, the word is near you. The word is near you. and In other words, brothers and sisters, here is the beauty of the gospel. We cannot ascend. It is necessary for God to not only descend, but condescend. Just because we know that there are neighborhoods that we wouldn't go into, and because we know that there are some people we wouldn't sit next to, God is not like us. He comes into that one, the worst neighborhood you can imagine, called the world. As as war says, the world is a ghetto. And God condescends. He could have written us off. But God, God condescends. And the whole point of God's covenant faithfulness, here's how he proves his love to us. Here's how he proves his faithfulness to us. He condescends to come to where we are. That's why one of the most powerful statements for me, uh, verses for me during the Advent season, is in John chapter 1. The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
Think about that. He gives us this lofty backlog, backstory of the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, and there was nothing made that was not made by Him, and in, all, and in Him all things consist. That's the Word, eternal, divine, all-powerful, needs nothing, became flesh. Think of flesh. What do you think about when you think about flesh? Well, here's what we think about. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Flesh needs to be refreshed, washed, cleansed, sleep. It needs food. It needs drink. It needs all of those things. And then even when you give it all those things, because it's fallen, it still falls apart. And here he was who needed nothing, became flesh. The God who neither slumbers nor sleeps became flesh where he needed to sleep. Sometimes we get it confused. We, we have been convinced that we're climbing Jacob's ladder. And we're not. On Jacob's ladder, the Lord of glory condescends. To be with us. Our confidence and our hope. Is that the the deity. Who is above all. The divine one. Comes down. And condescends. To us. We don't even have time to clean up. He comes to our, our home. He comes to planet earth. He takes on human flesh. He has a mother and a father, brothers and sisters, friends, all of whom, unlike him, are sinners. He did not have to do it. Brothers and sisters, can you think of places where you think, well, I, I'm here, but I don't want to be here. I, I, I wish I were somewhere else, but I, I know I need to go. That's not our Savior. Our Savior willingly and willfully and lovingly comes to us in our mess to help us by giving us the substance of God's covenant promises to us. It's like God has a letter for us and Jesus says, I'll take it. And his letter is, I love you. And Jesus gives us that letter by condescending to become like us. Hebrews chapter 10, quoting from uh, from Psalms 40, says, A body you have prepared me to do your will, O God. Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but to do your will. You have prepared a body for me. Here's evidence of God's steadfast love. It is a matter of him, of divine condescension. He will sin from heaven. You say, well, wait a minute. When David writes this, uh, Jesus hadn't come to earth yet. But everything that David experienced in the tabernacle said he is coming. In other words, David knew from the provisions of God's law that there was something greater that was coming. That there was one who would come in the likeness of men to accomplish the will of the Father. Here's the second thing that we can infer about God's steadfast or covenant love. God's covenant faithfulness is the divine cure 
for fallen sin-sick souls. That's what David realizes in the cave. Here's what I need most. You remember two things that he thought he needed when he went to the temple in, in 1 Samuel 21. He thought he needed physical bread. He thought he needed a sword. Here's what he realizes that here's what I need most of all. What I need is help from heaven. Something that being earning the favor of Gath is not going to give me. What I need is favor from heaven. Here is God. What I need is God to say I'm all right. In other words, what God sends from heaven for the help of man is the cure for our souls. And by the way, he gives us the dosage. He gives us everything that won't. It's it's not like it might. He gives us the cure for our souls. David says in Psalms 32, blessed is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. He says elsewhere, as we saw in Psalms 103, that, Lord, if you were to count iniquity, who would be able to stand? God has taken our sins as far as the east is from the west. He has cast it away from us. Here's our greatest problem. We have offended the God of creation. Here's his cure, a dose of his grace. God's covenant faithfulness is a matter. It is the divine cure for our human sin-sick souls, and there is nothing better, and there is nothing that can satisfy or heal us where we hurt most that is not taken care of in his grace. But here's the third and final thing, and that is God's steadfast love is secured by his divine character. God's steadfast love or his covenant promises are secured by his divine character. At the end of verse 3, he says, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. In other words, God's covenant to his, his covenant of grace to his people is a reminder that he is the one that's behind it. I guarantee it, he says. I guarantee the healing of your souls. I guarantee the end for everything that I I have promised you. I am the one who will secure it. From first to last, God heals us, corrects us, cleanses us, gives us righteousness, makes us righteous. In fact, here is how thorough he is in standing behind his word. When we are unfaithful, he's faithful. And brothers and sisters, we're unfaithful a lot. But he remains faithful. I'm reminded of the great hymn uh, where it says, uh, uh, Come ye disconsolate, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Brothers and sisters, God stands behind his promises. And sometimes when we are in the cave, swallowing, wallowing in our own misery, trying to escape from physical enemies, concerned about the wrath of God. He reminds us, but my covenant with you isn't, wasn't that I was going to try to get you out of this or do the best I can. My covenant promise to you is that I will make you what I have claimed you to be, 
I will renew you as I made Adam, that he would get us from first to last. In other words, what God promises to his people is eternal life. And there is nothing that can take that. And everything that God has purposed for us, we will accomplish it because he guarantees it with his own character. The beauty that we have in the, in the Lord's table is that God renews and ratifies to us the terms of his covenant every time we partake. This is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. And what does it say in the new covenant? Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Sometimes God drives us to the cave so that we can be reminded of who we are and whose we are. And so that we can be reminded that it's not our strength. It's not our ability. It's not our improvement. It's not even our willingness. It is God's covenant faithfulness that will get us through whatever he has put in our path. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you in the blessing.